It's six underscore B zero underscore F according to the hexadecimal time format inspired by John W. Nystrom's proposed base 16 tonal system of notation. I'm Marsha Jeffries with the top movie headlines. Arnold Schwarzenegger has apologised to audiences for the latest Terminator reboot. The Austrian Oak expressed disappointment that this reboot, much like the previous three, had failed to live up to the beloved originals. Arnie also took the opportunity to apologise for the next four reboots and assured fans that the fifth reboot from now will absolutely be worth the wait. Meanwhile, there's a growing internet backlash to the news that Oscar winner Lupita Nyong'o has been cast as Rosalind in the upcoming adaptation of William Shakespeare's As You Like It. A faction of Shakespeare fans is reportedly furious that the part is to be played by a woman, arguing that according to the tradition of Elizabethan theatre, the role of the beautiful heroine should go to a man dressed in female attire. An online petition to boycott the double X chromosome currently has 8 million signatures. And Disney has announced that producer Kevin Feige will be promoted to God. Disney bosses have been ecstatic with Feige's steering of the Marvel Studios franchises, with the promotion announced late last night during a shareholder call. Feige's new responsibilities will include plague administration, the eternal judgment of those who have committed mortal sins, and story development at Pixar. To sports now and in the Kevin Costner Baseball League, Bull Durham is top of the RT ladder with a 97% critical rating, comfortably ahead of Field of Dreams and for the love of the game at 86 and 45 respectively. In the homicidal tennis subgenre, Strangers on a Train maintains a steady lead ahead of Match Point. And in basketball films, Space Jam remains an incomprehensible mess kept alive solely by the quasi-ironic nostalgia of millennial hipsters. Now let's check in with Werner Herzog in The Chopper. The skies are a vision that seizes you in the moment before sleep like the demented fury of a hound that has sunk its teeth into the leg of a deer carcass and is shaking and tugging at the downed game so frantically that the hunter gives up trying to pacify it like a stanza in a poem written in an unknown language. I am shaken to the core. Thanks, Werner. Today's weather is room temperature. Based on my observations of this radio studio, now it's Bazura time. Hello and welcome to the Bazura Project's Radio Free Cinema. A big shout out to the good people of the Silver Screen Drive-In, who are currently trying to listen to a Star Trek double feature on the same frequency we are currently broadcasting on. Shannon Marenko and Lee Zachariah taking over the airwaves this Friday evening, right through to Monday morning for our special non-unionised marathon. Shannon, how are you? I'm good. Good morning. Morning all. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Good? Yes, I'm good. Great. What do we have coming up on the show? Good show today. We uncover the worldwide scam behind aspect ratios and how it's all a plot by Hollywood to push their elitist pro-rectangle agenda. We're going to look at black comedies and how, following logically, there must also be white comedies. And then we're going to try and talk our way out of that. And we're also going to chat with Humphrey Shell, creator of the acclaimed experimental films Man in Bed, Man in Kitchen, Man in Bathroom and Man in Car, and ask him where he gets his ideas from. 
Plus all the regular segments, Zorba the Geek, Coal Miner's Auteur, Gross Point Sank, A Streetcar Named Movie Trivia Quiz, lots to get through, should be a truly awful show. Meaning that it will be full of awe. Cannot wait to shove that in my head holes. So what's been happening? Well, as you know, Thursday marked my eight-month birthday, which means I'm only a third of the year away from my actual birthday. So the boys got together and surprised me with a present. Oh, isn't that nice? What did they get? They got me custom plates for my car. Really touching. Oh, that's lovely. Always a very thoughtful, non-tacky thing to do. So what do they say? Well, they say 27996. That's specific. Well, you know what it means, right? Hmm... It's not a date, is it? No. It's the Motion Picture Association of America production code for the colour purple. Right. That's interesting. These guys just know me so well. So, is that your favourite film or something? Um, well, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously a remarkable film. I don't know if I'd describe it as necessarily my number one favourite film, but if I was to make a list of all of my favourite films, or, or at least the films I admire or even seen, I definitely intend to check it out at some point. Right. Is, is your car at least purple? No, 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 no. Not so much purple as um, crashed into one of those, what do you call them, buildings. Well, still a thoughtful gift nonetheless, even if... You know, you haven't seen the film and no longer have a car. Those plates are expensive to buy. I'm pretty sure they made it themselves. It was written in pen. Actually, now I think about it, there was an area code before it. You know what? I think it was a phone number. Oh, hang on. That's my doctor's number. Okay, I wrote that. Oh, uh, what a day. Well, you're not going to believe this, but the exact same thing happened to me as well. Really? No, not really. I just wanted to undercut your story because nothing of interest happened to me at all this week. Didn't you get arrested for trespassing at Judy Davis's house while wearing a Princess Mononoke outfit and singing Ave Maria? Yeah, wasn't that interesting. You're listening to the Bazura Project's Radio Free Cinema. It's quiz time, so get your phones out and be ready to finger those buttons. But it's not just the fastest fingerer who wins. We also need you to give us the correct answer to this week's question. The first caller to answer correctly will win a copy of the little scene sci-fi adaptation, Henry IV in Space, in which the HAL 9000 computer from 2001 A Space Odyssey plays the role of Prince HAL. You dare call me a knave in mine own astro tavern. Get thee to an airlock, thou foul cur. I'm afraid I can't do that, Dave. Ha, what a classic. Of all the films that contributed to the collapse of the Canon Group, that's my favourite. And there is definitely a thematic connection between that prize and the question we'll be quizzing you all on today. So for a chance to win, call in now and you could be the one we call upon. Shannon, what is today's question? We would like to know which film featured the following classic quote. For never was a story of more woe than this of Juliet. And her Romeo. Caller, you're up. Oh, hey. Is it from Romeo and Juliet? Well, (laughs) that's a bit broad. There have been literally hundreds of Romeo and Juliet films made. Can you be more specific? Um, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Incorrect. But congrats on triggering the first wrong answer of the day alarm. Do I get anything? No. Next caller, you're on the air. Okay, um... Is it from the Franca Zeffirelli R&J, the 1968 one? Interesting, interesting. Getting warmer uh, or colder, depending on which metric you're using. But no. Caller, you're up. 
Oh, it's got to be the first ever feature adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, the silent version from 1916. Bit left field there. Not sure how a line of dialogue can be from a silent film, but good try, though. Terrible try there. I'm amazed it's taking everyone this long. This is a legendary line. Come on, people. You probably studied this. Think shake something. Or something spear. Yes, yes, something spear. Think that. Hello, caller. I reckon this is a trick question. I'm going to say it's from Hamlet. Look, no, that's so off the mark, I'm not even going to ask which version of Hamlet you're talking about. Unless it's the 1990 version, which does actually contain this line, but is also wrong. I'm losing faith. Come on, people. For never was a tale of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo. Hello, caller. Yeah, hi. Look, it's got to be the Kenneth Branagh much ado about nothing with um, Keanu Reeves. No, it doesn't. That's such a Keanu line, a tale of woe. I can totally imagine him saying that. Oh, for Christ's sake. Next caller. I think I've got it. Is it from a film in which someone performs... Romeo and Juliet. Like the characters in the film go see a performance of the play. Oh, you're on the right track in the sense that you've described a scenario, but no. Next caller, you're up. Is it George Cucor's version from 1936? No. Is it the Italian made for TV version, Romeo and Julietta from 1954? No, you idiot. Is it the Indian one from 1947 directed by Akhtar Hussein? No, jeez. Try a bit harder, people. God, such a mainstream audience. Next caller. Uh, is it... What's that one? It was from a few years back. It's got that guy from, you know, the one. He's always going sort of, you know what I mean. And he's always doing that thing, and he's in it with that chick. God, what is she from? But but she's really good in it. Like it was one of her first big roles, I think. You know who I mean. We'll need more information. Uh, it was a big hit, I think, or maybe a big failure, but a critical hit. I think people discovered it later when when it was on video. About two hours long, it had those, what do you call them? Scrolling things at the end. Lots of names. End credits? Yes, that's it. Good music score too. Um, Solid cinematography. It's right on the tip of my tongue. I'm so close. What is it? What is is that? I can literally picture the poster. So-and-so in something. And that buzzer means you've won the prize. Sorry to everyone who missed out. Remember to call in next time when we ask, can you guess the film based purely on its title? The Bazura Project's Radio Free Cinema. And now, a public service announcement. Hi, I'm Peter Hellier, writer and star of the feature film I Love You Too, the sixth instalment of The Cremaster Cycle. Recently, you've heard a number of public service announcements about how to, and how not to, watch movies in the comfort of your home. Tom Cruise and director Christopher McQuarrie appeared on camera to talk about how high-def motion smoothing can ruin the picture image. David Lynch explained why watching movies on your phone robs you of the proper cinematic experience. And now I'm here to talk about a TV setting most people aren't aware of. Poltergeisting. Poltergeisting is similar to the effect known as ghosting, but instead of mistimed images superimposed over one another, poltergeisting is what happens when paranormal manifestations of the restless dead emerge from your television through the white noise static and, in newer models, kidnap your youngest child by way of an interdimensional phantom portal. 
If you have a Japanese television, you probably know this as ringuing and may have noticed it happening whenever the vengeful spirit of a psycho kinetically powered girl climbs out of the screen to literally frighten you to death. If you've ever experienced spectral abductions or fatal terrors, you'll know they can really get in the way of the movie watching experience. But there is a way to fix this. Simply turn on your TV and go into the settings menu. Select picture settings, then scroll down to advanced picture settings, then scroll down even further to convoluted picture settings, and then keep going down until you reach torturous picture settings. Then, ah, uh, hang on, that's, no, that, no that, that, that's wrong. Go back a few steps, no further. Maybe try pressing display. Actually, what does that blue button do? Oh, wait, wait, wait. Options. That's the one you want. Try options. Actually, just give me the remote. Let's see if I can remember how to. Okay, so what if I just press... No, that's not it. How about... Oh, that's made it worse. That's... How do I go back? How do I go back? Oh, God, it's here! <laughs> it's here! It's here! It's got me! It's got me! Tell my family off! We're very excited to be joined by Katarina Rice, the executive producer behind such Oscar-winning films as Flowers for Satan, Paternity Ward Blues, and Romancing the Horse. Katarina is currently in Australia producing her upcoming film, the drama Ocean of Seas. Katarina, welcome to Radio Free Cinema, comma, The Bazura Projects. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Many of our listeners know you as an awards season doyen, but for those who don't know how you got your start, how did you? Get it. So many people only know me as the producer of the Golden Palm winning drama Accidental Sex Tourist, but even I had to start at the bottom. <laughs> I was originally hired as a lowly runner at the D-grade production company Schlock and & Key, and after a gruelling stint in that job, I was promoted to executive producer later that afternoon. So I basically began my career making a lot of really low-tier stuff – Cheap horrors like Nibble of the Vampire or bottom-budget westerns like Doc Lawyer and the Grown-Up Kid, knowing parodies such as Octo Stalin versus Megalennon. But then I came across a script for a real quality tearjerker called The Uncircumcised Heart. And I thought, Schlock and Key is never going to make this film. So I struck out on my own, raised financing, and suddenly I'm up on stage accepting an Oscar from What's Left of Warren Beatty. That was your first award, wasn't it? It was. I mean, I'd won several Golden Globes for Octo Stalin, but basically, yes. I've got to say how much I adored your next film, Architects in Love. I'm always quoting Sally's line in that. They say the windows are the eyes of the house. So profound. Thank you. Well, I really felt Sally Houseman's story needed to be told. She was such a trailblazer. You know, Sally was the first female architect to add a rear door to the standard backyard shed. She dismissed the concept of load-bearing columns as a symbol of phallocentric structural integrity. And, of course, she sent ripples through the architectural world when she designed the world's shortest building, a record she still holds to this day. You've really cornered the market in making films that push the boundaries... Just a little bit, you know, just a tiny bit, like just enough to feel edgy, but not enough to put anyone off. Just a half step, 
in front of the zeitgeist. Yeah, I really appreciate that. My aim is to challenge people without really challenging them. Hey, that's why you win Oscars. Now you're back home in Australia for the filming on your latest project. It's a biopic, a very Australian story. What can you tell us about it? Yeah, well, it's a fascinating tale. When I was out here a year ago promoting scenes from a hole, you saw it. Oh, uh, yeah, great film. We, we, we definitely watched that. Mm. I was doing an interview in a radio studio, much like this one, by a local journalist, Sabine Bancolet. And she told me a story that I knew would make a smashing film. Oh, wow. Sabine wrote it. Did you know that? I, I, I didn't know that. Uh, we, we should explain. She's an old colleague of ours. You know, we've known her for years. Oh, well, we were getting ready to do the interview, an interview much like this, and I asked her about a picture on her phone. I thought it was a photo of Sabine holding her baby, but it turned out to be her mother holding her right before they fled Sudan. And Sabine began telling me the story of her life, of how they narrowly escaped violence, how they survived in the wilds for seven months, how her mother built a raft from branches so they could sail to Australia, how her mother then died of dysentery during the trip and two-year-old Sabine had to sail the raft all the way to Australia by herself, perform a burial for her mother and catch fish with her bare hands. I mean, I knew right there it was a million-dollar pitch. I actually bought it from her right there in the middle of the interview for a million bucks. Right there? Yeah, right there. That's great. That's really great for her. So great. Really, really great. She's great. Everything is great. A million dollars. She deserves that money. She really does. So so what was it about her tale exactly? You know, that story is kind of interesting, but feels sort of act one-ish, you know, a bit prologue-y. Well, if you know her, you'd be aware of what happened next. Once in Australia, she was placed in an orphanage and ended up putting herself through school waiting tables. And she dreamed of being a journalist, but it wasn't until she uncovered a mob deal taking place at her restaurant between her boss and her regular customers that she really broke through. She collected evidence at risk of death, published an article that sent ripples through the world of law enforcement and scored a permanent job as a reporter. She went on to win numerous awards and was able to make enough money to pay for her neighbour's spine reconstruction surgery so he could comfortably fly to Cyprus to be reunited with his long-lost fiancée. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I knew all that. Yeah, we both knew that. So, funny story, I first got to know her back when we shared a desk at a paper. I was a budding film journalist and we bonded over having equally fascinating backstories. And, I mean, I don't need to go into it now, but you, you know what it's like when, you know, two orphans, two self-made scrappy orphans get together. There's, there's a real connection. You're not an orphan. Well, I guess it depends on your definition. You know, I essentially had to fend for myself after my parents were... It's hard to talk about, but basically they were never home between 3.30 and 4pm. I'd get back from school and it would be a full 20 minutes before anyone showed up. Yeah, so... I remember talking to Sabine about it and she'd say, wow, that's amazing, your story is so much more bankable than mine. It's a weird choice of words. Right. Well, this deal came along at just the right time because, of course, Sabine is hoping to rebuild the orphanage she grew up in after it was destroyed in an arson attack by the very mobsters she was responsible for imprisoning. But obviously, we're saving that story for the sequel. Wow. Orphanage fire. That's that's hard to beat. But not impossible. 
I mean, sure, we've all burned down the odd orphanage in our time. Well, no, I don't think that... But plenty of people have stories that would work on the screen. I mean, take me, for example. Or me. Things were pretty hard for me. Things were super hard for me. I grew up in extreme poverty. I grew down in supreme mega-poverty. I was too poor for the school bus, so I had to walk to a school for the gifted. I was too poor to walk, so I had to crawl to a school for idiots. My best friend was murdered by a serial killer. Two of my best friends were murdered by three serial killers. The police did nothing, so I had to capture the killer single-handed. The police thought I did it, so I had to capture all the killers with no hands. Okay, guys, this is getting weird. Sorry. Double sorry. Look, these sorts of rags to riches true life stories... Are difficult. Yes, they win awards, but they very rarely light the box office on fire. That's why I'm looking to diversify into space movies. I worked for NASA. And maybe a few musicals. <coughs> Swing low, sweet chariot. And the China market is becoming massive, so I'm pursuing more Chinese leads. Uh... That's all the time we have left. Katarina, thank you for joining us. Why is he doing that with his face? He's not doing anything. Bye now. You're listening to Radio Free Cinema. We're back out on the street asking you the tough, important movie questions. Blockbuster movies have been crowding the smaller films out of the marketplace. Which independent drama from the last few years do you think should have got more attention? There's there's so many options to choose from. Uh, I prefer the original. I've always liked Greg Kinnear. Just so long as there's plenty of full frontal nudity. I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? Radio Free Cinema. We talk a lot here at Radio Free Cinema about the things Hollywood does right and the things it does wrong. And there's one modern movie device that I don't think gets the credit it's due. Hmm, do tell. It's the frankly ingenious melding of genre. When filmmakers take a classical text or historical figure, something pretty old and out of date, and make it exciting and watchable by turning it into a rock'em, sock'em monster action movie. Like, say, the thing that Jeremy Renner did a few years ago, Hansel and Gretel, Witch Hunters. Or the 2016 film Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Yes, exactly. And, and that other one, Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. It's such a fun and inexhaustible formula. And thank God those creative geniuses are at it again. We are honoured to be the first to bring you this thrilling brand new trailer. So get ready to be wowed as you're transported back to the foggy streets of 19th century London. Will, what are we doing atop this cathedral? I thought we were going dancing. Soon, my love. There's some business I must take care of first. But it's so cold. And I'm filled to the brim with girlish glee. (gasps) What's that? That would be a gargoyle. But it's come to life. Mm, It seems that way, doesn't it? Step aside, please. Did you just stab a living gargoyle? What mad world have you dragged me into? Goodbye. Well, it's not the worst date I've had. Excuse me, uh, Mr. Gilbert? Who wants to know? I am Her Majesty's private yeoman. I've been observing you for some time, and I must say, I have never seen anyone stab a gargoyle with such skill. Come, there's someone you must meet. W.S. Gilbert, meet Arthur Sullivan, England's chief gargoyle stabber. A pleasure to meet you. Do feel free to explore my library. I've information animal, vegetable, and mineral. And what does a fancy fop like you know about gargoyle stabbing? I'll have you know, I studied the art of gargoyle rudo in Japan under the one they call the Mikado. What? A ponce. 
Your Majesty, may I present Gilbert and Sullivan. Gentlemen, your country needs you. Listen, Queenie, I work better alone. I have a habit of being confrontational and thin-skinned. And I, on the other hand, prefer to avoid conflict. You simply can't partner two people with such opposing personalities. Think of the friction. Enough! As Queen Victoria, I hereby command you to work together harmoniously. If the two of you don't stab a bunch of gargoyles, it could spell the end of the British Empire. I say, Gilbert, look here. This ancient text says that once every 21 leap years, the gargoyle king emerges from this gateway to try to take over the world. Well, how the hell are we going to get to Penzance by February 29? Ah, may I present my ship? The HMS Pinafore. This isn't the way to Penzance, you fool. We're going to wind up in Barataria. I told you, I know a shortcut. You know, Gilbert, if we're to have any hope of stabbing all these gargoyles, we're going to have to learn to work together. Fine, you first. The gateway. It's opening. I am Radigor, the gargoyle king. Your world will be mine. <laughs> this probably isn't the best time to tell you, Gilly old chap, but I've mostly just read about gargoyle stabbings in books. I've not actually stabbed one myself. What? Never? No, never. What? Never? Well, hardly ever. <laughs> Sullivan, if we survive this, have you thought about what you might do for the rest of your life? <laughs> Well, I always fancy the idea of going into musical theatre. Musical theatre. I couldn't imagine anything worse. W.S. Gilbert. I am the very model of a modern major ass-kicker. Yes! And Arthur Sullivan. Gentlemen, I do hope you're awaiting the sensation of a short, sharp, shock. Ha! R. Gilbert and Sullivan. Gargoyle Stabbers. Who's that walking towards us? Do you recognize him, Sully? I think so, Gil. But surely it can't be. Gentlemen, my name is Oscar Wilde, and you've both entered a world larger than you have ever imagined. Welcome to Britain's official society of monster stabbers. That sounds incredible. Oh, I am super excited for this film, especially the way it sets up what promises to be a really fascinating shared universe. Yes, I'm particularly looking forward to next year's Benjamin Disraeli Leprechaun Stabber. Well, speaking of franchise blockbusters, I've had something of a realisation recently, a bit of a eureka moment. Hmm, go on. Well, I've been thinking about how if you're a musician wanting to make some money, get some attention, there's no better way than getting your song in a movie trailer. Not just because you get the licensing fee for them using the song, but it's essentially a free music video, a free ad for your work. So people, you know, they get the song stuck in their head, they go buy it. Exactly. And I was wondering how that happens if there's a way to kind of game the system. And I reckon there's a formula. At least there's a formula for a specific type of movie. What type of movie? Superhero films. I don't mean your your Batman or your Captain's America. I'm talking about the big epic team-ups, Avengers, Justice League, that sort of thing. They all use the same type of song. Had you noticed? I had not. All right, let's run through them. Here's the trailer for the first Avengers film. 
Okay. Now, here's the trailer for Justice League. Come together. And here's the Defenders, the Netflix team-up of Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage and Iron Fist. Okay, I'm seeing a thread here. We're in this together. Come together. Come as you are. A definite theme of uh, camaraderie, of fellowship. Right. And there can only be so many songs about people coming together or being in something together. So what happens for future team-up films? What songs will be left for them? And there's a market here because there's no way they're going to stop making these films. So I've been tinkering away on a song that I'm hopeful will be used in a trailer for a future team-up film. Can I hear it? I thought you'd never ask. Well, you've got amazing powers and you know what you're fighting for. You thought you were the only one, but there's at least five more. We've each been forced to stand alone, fighting the abyss. But those were all just minor steps designed to lead to this. We're standing in a circle, and we got each other's back. One of us is a woman, and one of us is black. We're standing in a circle, cause alone we just can't face. A foe requiring six of us to send on back to space. Well, at first, despite our common values, we couldn't see eye to eye. So it's weird that we fight, but then unite to fight some larger guy. Cause we're standing in a circle, trading witty bombs, coordinating outfits, and steering clear of cops. Yeah, we're standing in a circle, or a row if numbers swell. So this slightly taller nemesis gets sent straight back to hell. We're standing in a circle. And we're all dressed in purple. We report to Angela Merkel. Distributed by Universal. Oh, what a banger. Nice work. Any interest from the studios? Not yet, but I have been asked to score the next Justice League. Oh, what did you give it? About one and a half. Coming up on the show. A marketing exec working on the new Lego movie cautiously pitches the tagline, Block Lives Matter. We sing Rachel Vice to the tune of Sound of Music's Edelweiss for some reason. And is the Academy Award winning film Wings cursed? Everyone involved in this 1927 classic is now dead. You're listening to Radio Free Cinema. Well, this is very, very exciting for us. We are about to be joined via satellite by one of the legends of cinema. 
Velma Schopenhauer is an absolute icon, one of the most legendary editors of all time. She cut the epic war drama Korean Killing. She cut the Oscar-winning Assassination Red. And she cut Harvey Weinstein during a particularly brutal post-production phase. She mastered every style of editing, the match cut, the jump cut, the cross cut. And during one summer when she operated a hair salon with Terrence Malick, the crew cut. And she joins us now from her home in New York. Velma, welcome. Hello. Oh, it's such a pleasure to speak with you. I want to start by floating a theory I've had for a long time about the work of Raffaello Ricci. You worked with him on some of his biggest films. You edited Wings Over Yonkers, Gangs of Liberty Island, and The Baptism of Giovanni Rabinowitz. Now, in Wings, everyone knows the famous shot of Harvey Keitel staring at the cloud reflected in the clock over his bed. Now, in Gangs, when Amanda Sante looks at his pocket watch... You can see the Statue of Liberty reflected right back. And in baptism, Giovanni discovers his godfather has been killed when he finds his blood on the family sundial. Now, it's been said that the cloud shot represents God. Everyone knows that. And many have said they see Jesus' parallels in the pocket watch Statue of Liberty scene. I posit that the sundial shot from the third film is the Holy Ghost. You have another timepiece, which always has religious connotations in Ricci's films. And the blood is the Godfather's echo, his ghost, if you will. You know, Ricci is well known for his strong Catholic upbringing. He famously wanted to become a priest right up until 1968 when the MPAA introduced the X rating. So this theory isn't a total flight of fancy. But what it suggests is that the three films are linked, at least thematically, that time or the act of measuring time is God. It is the Holy Trinity. Just a second. Sorry, Velma. I don't think that's correct. Ricci has said in interviews that the interpretation of the clocks is always about time. It's literal, sure, but that's absolutely his intent. His characters are always running out of time. They start every film with their death basically preordained, be it in the opening scene of Wings when Keitel's character is diagnosed with a brain tumour, or the fact that we literally begin gangs with a shot of Asante's grave, or the fact that Giovanni's baptism is ultimately just him drowning after dozing off in a hot tub. They're all marked men. That's the point. Hang on. These shots can have multiple meanings, and the fact that these films were made you know, in fairly quick success Succession suggests that this was in some way deliberate. Velma, you were the editor. Did you have any discussions with him about this? Because we know that Ricci does draw distinct parallels between time, specifically clocks, and God. Wait, how do we know that? Oh, a little film called The Passenger of Spring Falls. Oh, what? Because the main character can travel in time. His best friend is a sentient digital watch named Doug, which is an anagram of you, God. That's a bit of a stretch. They also meet that gigantic sentient grandfather clock. So? It's a fantasy film. He, he made it for kids. The grandfather clock calls himself the creator, the almighty, and at one point, Yahweh. Oh, that could mean anything. Yes, anything can mean anything. That's my point. Fine. Let's hear what Velma has to say. But before we do, I'd like to point you to a 1997 interview Ricci did with Premiere magazine where he said, and I quote... When I refer to religion in my films, I put it front and centre. No metaphor. Not even unintentional metaphor. I tell all of my collaborators, make sure I don't accidentally put some religious metaphor in there. If I want a Jesus-type character in my film, you'd better believe that Jesus himself will come back to earth to fulfil that purpose. That's largely why my Rocky sequel was considered a failure. But in my films, a gun is a gun, a cigar is a cigar, and a clock is nothing more than a clock. No, you're reading way too much into that interview. 
Look, we haven't got much time left with the satellite link, so we really should get to Velma. And we might only have time for one question, so we simply have to ask about Terry Pickwode. Velma, you and Terry never actually worked together despite being married and both being successful filmmakers. How often did you talk about your projects with one another? And is it true that you came up with the idea of cutting from the fire of London to the sun rising over the Thames in the Charcoal City? The unforgettable edit that is widely credited with winning Douglas Simcott his first Academy Award. Hang on. That film came out in 1974. I know. They didn't get married until 1976. But they started dating in 1974. Yeah, but the film was shot in 1973. That's still enough time for them to meet and for her to have some input on a film that would still have been in post-production. Not when the film came out mid-January. Even if they met after midnight on New Year's Eve and he showed her the film that evening, they wouldn't have enough time to strike enough new prints for its opening day. How long does it take to strike a print? I don't know. Should we Google it? Yeah, do it. God, the Wi-Fi is really crap in here. Which network are you connected to? The studio one. Yeah, but which studio one? The staff login. Station dash corporate. 5G or 2.4G? There's two. I don't know. Why do they have two? I think one's for phones, the other's for computers. My phone and my computer both connect to my home Wi-Fi. What's the point of having two? Hmm, not sure. I'll Google it. God, the reception in here is terrible. I told you, the Wi-Fi is always crap. No, no, I'm using my phone data. I never get any reception in here. How are you going? Has anything come up? Yes, here we go. Okay. The Newsboys' strike of 1899 was a campaign to change the way newspaper hawkers were compensated for their work. Does that answer your question? I'm not sure. I forgot what I asked. Yeah, same. Okay, I think we're about to lose the satellite. Velma, I'm sorry we didn't get to as much as we would have liked, but we really appreciate your time. We're such huge fans. Absolutely. Being able to talk to you was a dream come true. Velma, thank you for joining us. On the Bazura Project's Radio Free Cinema. Thank you. You're listening to Radio Free Cinema. And that was, of course, UB40 with their cover of Elton John's Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me, the title track from Ken Russell's Oedipus Rex. I still remember the first time I saw that. What an amazing work of cinema. Oh, they couldn't make that film today. Because of copyright infringement? Yeah. And speaking of copyright infringement, it's time for Movie Mailbag. You received a letter from Mr. Halliday. This letter was found in the dead man's pocket. Now you say you did not know... So let's check in with our producer, Faith. Faith, what has the mailbag got for us today? Listener Alfred Kralik writes in to say, I can't be bothered opening up IMDb. Could you tell me what year The Goonies came out? Excellent question. This is actually something that comes up quite a lot. It's remarkable how often we're asked this. And specifically about The Goonies. Yes, it's strange that it's always that one. Occasionally we get a question about the original Nosferatu or Agnes Varda's Cleo from 5 to 7. But for the most part... I think people just want to know in which year The Goonies was made. Now, why is that, do you think? Well, I reckon it's one of those films where you know which decade it was made in. You know, it's such an 80s film. But unlike films like 
you know, Back to the Future, you don't always have the exact year in mind. Yeah, I think there are a few like that. And because The Goonies is such a crucial childhood film for so many in our generation, I think they want an exact marker to know exactly when during the course of their childhood it came out. Well, let me ask you this. Why us? You mean, why do they ask us about The Goonies? Yeah, I've asked other people at the station, you know, other film journos. Nobody gets asked this question as much as we do. Hmm. I think it's the fact that we're always ready with an answer. Like, people rely on us for fast, accurate responses to these conundrums, and we deliver. We really do, don't we? Yeah. I love that about us. Yeah, I, I love this question, and I'll tell you why. We know our listeners have highbrow tastes. Uh, we get a lot of feedback from people wanting to hear about French New Wave's left bank movement or debating the finer points of Solaris, but they don't turn their noses up at fun, goofy films like The Goonies, and I think that's great. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Thanks for writing in. You're listening to Radio Free Cinema. And that's all the time we have for this week. But before we wrap things up, how many of you picked the obscure movie quote from earlier in the show? Here it is again. It is a time of great unrest. That's right. That was the narrator from the fantasy epic... The time of great unrest. Pat yourself on the back if you got it right. Such a memorable line. I'm always quoting that at parties. Well, don't forget to join us next week when we take a peek behind the scenes of the upcoming Hitler Film Festival and why it's upsetting so many people who think we have too many film festivals as it is. Although I did like the tagline for this one. You can't spell thriller without Hitler. My God, you're right. See you next week.